Well, things are going a little differently this morning than they have in the past, right? Uh, this is our this is our new schedule, and uh, y'all bear with us while we work through the, you know a few kinks because it's going to take us all a little bit, uh, a few tries to get get uh, things nailed down. Um, this morning, I'm I'm your your uh, welcomer and your preacher, so uh, <laughs> I'm not going to actually read through the passage this time because I'm still trying to figure out how to pace this this hour. And we will put all of the passage that we're going to be looking at will be up on the slides and we'll work through it verse by verse as always. Um, but what I am definitely going to do is pray. <laughs> so let's do that. Loving Father, thank you so much uh, for this body and for the the great delight, as Pete said this morning, of coming together and uh, just worshiping you together, uh, lifting our voices up to you, praising you, praying to you, and Father, going to your word. We, we turn this uh, change of schedule over to you. We know that there's nothing magic about the order or the length of our services, but we pray, Lord, that that you might see fit to use this in a constructive way. Um, and that, above all, Father, you would grant us unity. You would grant us uh, a, a unity of purpose as we strive together for the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ above all other things. Lord, we um, we pray that you would Make us attentive to that which you have to show us in this passage. It's another amazing passage. And there's much in it, especially about the nature of genuine faith uh, that demands our attention. So, Father, we, we uh, devote this time to you, and we look to you to speak to us from your word. Um, and we thank you, Lord, for the power of that word. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to begin this morning with a, a little rant on the topic of justification because I'm convinced that our faith in and our faithful proclamation of the gospel demands that we get this right. Last week, in chapter 3, 27 through 4, 8, Paul explained that boasting, all boasting, is excluded because we are justified by faith apart from works whether they be works of the law of Moses or works of any other kind. In chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, he made a statement that is at the heart of all he has to say about justification, about how a man becomes counted as righteous in the eyes of a holy God. Now that statement in four, four, verses 4 and 5 makes a lot of people, including a lot of Christians, very uncomfortable. Here's the statement. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. I'm convinced that Paul is going to great pains to be clear on this issue precisely because it runs counter to the way that we in our sinful, self-serving habit of thinking 
like to believe that things should work. Our works contribute absolutely nothing to our standing in the eyes of God. Until we have been justified by faith, our works are nothing but filthy rags in the eyes of God. Now, the fact that the justification being spoken of throughout this whole section of Romans is forensic or judicial justification is made clear by the repeated occurrence of the word reckoned. The connotation of that word in this passage is credited to one's account. The Greek word for reckoned occurs 11 times in chapter 4 of Romans alone. One time it's translated in verse 8 as take into account, but it's the same idea and the same word. Every time it occurs in this chapter, God is the subject, the one doing the reckoning. And this chapter is the only chapter in the entire New Testament in which that word occurs with God as the subject more than once. And here it occurs 11 times. Now let me explain what's meant by forensic or judicial justification. This section in chapter 3 through 5 of Romans is not about how we become sanctified. That is, it's not about how the righteousness of God gets worked out in our behavior. It's not about practice, it's about position. Paul will deal with the matter of practice very soon in this epistle, but not here. His very clear focus in this portion of the epistle is on how our sin becomes credited to Jesus' account and paid for in full by Him, and how His righteousness becomes credited to our account, even though all we deserve is eternal condemnation. It becomes credited to us as a free gift only through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. That's called imputation. We are covered, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And when God sees us, he sees the righteousness of his own son. That imputation of God's own righteousness to the believer is what Paul is talking about every time he uses the term justification or justified in this passage. Let me see if I can get this working right. All right. Paul goes to greater lengths than any other New Testament writer to explain the distinction between positional righteousness and practical righteousness. He takes great pains to spell it out for us so that there's no room for misunderstanding. But we must most certainly not treat his words here as some sort of aberration regarding justification as it's presented in the rest of Scripture. This passage is the biblical core of the doctrine of justification, of how men become declared, reckoned, counted as righteous in the eyes of God. And it is entirely in keeping with everything said in both Testaments about our utter, desperate inability to make ourselves righteous in the eyes of God. If you get this wrong, you get the gospel wrong. If our justification in God's eyes is not absolutely free, granted to us only by grace through faith, apart from works, secured for us only through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, then the good news is not good news.
It's just another version of the glorified self-worship that characterizes every other man-made religion on the face of this earth. So we need to get this right. End of rant. In chapter 4, verse 9, Paul picks up exactly where the previous passage left off. Talking further about the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Having set forth Abraham and then David as examples of such men, Paul now zeroes in further on the example of Abraham to further flesh out his argument regarding the free gift of justification. Here's where we're going this morning. In the rest of chapter 4, starting at verse 9, Paul probes further into the nature of the faith by which Abraham was declared righteous by God. And he does so because he's presenting Abraham's faith as a template for our faith. He's saying, in effect, that if our faith is not the same kind as Abraham's, then the righteousness that God credited to Abraham's account will not be credited to our account. First, in verses 9 to 12, he will explain that Abraham was justified apart from circumcision. Next, in verses 13 to 16, that Abraham was justified apart from the law. Then, having made the case for how Abraham was not justified, he provides in verses 17 to 22 a powerful and powerfully important picture of the nature of Abraham's faith, of Abraham's belief in the promise of God. And those verses show us what Abraham's faith looked like in real life. They give us some very important instruction. Finally, in verses 23 to 25, Paul declares that we, as New Testament saints, are justified the same way Abraham was. By having the faith of Abraham, uh, we are declared righteous. First, verses 9 through 12, Paul declares that Abraham was justified apart from circumcision. In verse 9, he poses a question. Is this blessing then upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? Now, the blessing to which he's referring is the one he talked about in verse 6. If you back up a little bit and look at that, where it says, Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. To answer the question as to whether that blessing of imputed righteousness is for the circumcised only or for both circumcised and uncircumcised, Paul goes to the issue of timing. (laughs) And he raises the issue, at what point in Abraham's life was his faith reckoned or counted to his credit as righteousness? Uh, while he was circumcised or while he was uncircumcised. And he says, it was not while circumcised, verse 10, but while uncircumcised. Now, why is the timing of Abraham's justification such a big deal? It's because it proves that circumcision has nothing to do with justification. If he was justified before he was circumcised, then he certainly was not justified because he was circumcised. It's really that simple. Verses 11 and 12 provide a very, very helpful analysis of the true significance of the physical memorial 
of circumcision. Circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. If you go back to Genesis 17, you'll see how that's presented. When we studied the great covenants earlier this year, we saw that a covenant sign is an outward reminder, a physical memorial of a greater inward spiritual reality. Paul affirms that same understanding here in Romans 4. He says, The sign of circumcision was for Abraham a seal of the righteousness of the faith which Abraham had while uncircumcised. Verse 11. These words are very important. They tell us that the sign or memorial of circumcision does not equate to righteousness. It was a seal of the righteousness of faith that Abraham already had. The outward sign did not do anything to make Abraham righteous. It was simply a visible confirmation of that which had already transpired invisibly and internally. Now, Paul expands on that understanding in Colossians 2, verses 9 to 15. He said, For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And then he says, And in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. And the audience he's speaking to is predominantly Gentile. He says, In the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And then back to the issue of circumcision, he says, verse 13, You were dead in your, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, and which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That is judicial justification. He canceled out the debt, took the decree against us, and he nailed it to the cross of Christ. Paul's words in both Romans 4 and Colossians 2 have significance that goes well beyond the memorial of circumcision. They give us a very valuable understanding regarding all religious observances or ceremonies. An understanding that should help us avoid the damaging errors that arise when we treat such ceremonies as ends in themselves. Baptism is an important example. There are those who teach what's called baptismal regeneration. That is that the the physical ceremony of baptism is required in order for a person to be saved. And that spiritual regeneration depends on obedience to that physical ceremony. But baptism is presented in Scripture even in this passage in Colossians in verses 12 and verse 12 as being in the same category as circumcision. That is, it's an external symbol of an internal transformation that has already occurred. Baptism by water pictures the true baptism. And in many passages in the New Testament, when baptism is mentioned, it's talking about the true baptism, not the physical baptism. That is, it's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit 
a work which occurs without exception when a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ. The ceremony of baptism is commanded of New Testament believers just as circumcision was commanded of Abraham and his descendants. But treating baptism or circumcision or any other action of men as the means by which we become righteous in the eyes of God is a negation of grace and it diminishes the perfect work of Jesus Christ at the cross. Indeed, every effort by men to in any way include their own works in their justification before God denies the perfection of Christ's work at the cross. His work canceled out the certificate of debt against us, not our work. Now the purpose clause, or that clause in verses 11 and 12, is a paradigm changer for the Jews in Paul's audience. It says, And he, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, that, in order that, he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. He's being very clear here. There are two categories of people to whom God reckons righteousness. Uncircumcised people who have the faith of Abraham and circumcised people who have the faith of Abraham. I love the way Paul spells it out in verse 12. Those who follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So what is the common thread between those two categories? The faith of Abraham. Some of the Jewish believers in Paul's audience, especially the ones we know as the Judaizers, could not accept the notion that a Gentile believer in Christ was not required to be circumcised. They considered circumcision mandatory in every respect and necessary for justification in God's eyes. Paul's making it crystal clear that the fact that we are justified by faith apart from works does away with the requirement of circumcision. Now, I want you to take note of the not only but also wording in verse 12 because it's going to show up two more times in this passage, that structure. And in all three cases, the essential point will be the same. In verses 13 to 16, Paul moves from the matter of circumcision to the matter of the law. He says in verse 13 and 14, For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. Not only does the righteousness which comes through faith establish the law by fulfilling, as we saw last week, the righteous requirement of the law, it also establishes God's covenant promises. Specifically here, God's promise to Abraham that he would be heir of the world. Now, what does that mean, that Abraham would be heir of the world? 
I believe the promise Paul's talking about here is really the, the set of promises that God made to Abraham regarding his seed, his descendants, uh, and the true seed, Jesus Christ. That is, that God would make Abraham the father of a multitude of nations, would grant him innumerable descendants like the stars of the heavens, and that through Abraham all the families of the earth would be blessed. And, of course, all those promises had their perfect fulfillment in Christ. Uh, You'll find those promises in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. In verse 14, Paul says, For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. At first glance, that might appear to be saying that none of the Jews are true heirs of Abraham. But as he proceeds with his argument, it becomes very clear that that's not the case. He's not saying that none of those who are of the law are heirs. He's saying that the law is not what makes them heirs. His very strong point here is that if men become heirs or descendants of Abraham by keeping the law of Moses, then faith is made void. And the promise God made to Abraham is canceled out. It's nullified. You can't have it both ways. Now, I want to make sure we don't gloss over Paul's words in verse 15. He says, For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is neither violation. I think he's very precise with his wording here. The word translated violation is the same word often translated transgression. It's not the same word as sin. Transgression means to exceed a boundary. Both sin and transgression result in judgment, but transgression implies specific knowledge regarding the instruction or standard that is being transgressed, knowledge of the boundary. Douglas Moo puts it this way. He says, while every transgression is also a sin, not every sin is a transgression. Paul then is not claiming that there is no sin where there is no law, but an almost a truism, that there is no deliberate disobedience of positive commands where there is no positive command to disobey. As Calvin puts it, he who is not instructed by the written law when he sins is not guilty of so great a transgression as he who knowingly breaks and transgresses the law of God. Perhaps the best way to explain the difference between sin and transgression is by looking at the words of Jesus in Luke 12. In the parable about the master of a household who returns home after being away for his wedding feast. In the second part of the parable, the master, upon returning, finds that his chief steward, the top dog among the slaves, was mistreating the other slaves, and he was stuffing himself with the house's food and getting drunk, thinking that he would get away with it because his master wouldn't return for a long time. In verses 46 to 48, Jesus says, The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will, shall receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging 
will receive but few. And from everyone who has been given much shall much be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. This parable speaks of a harsher penalty upon the slave who knew specifically what behavior the master required versus the one who did not have that specific knowledge. The one who, uh, the one who didn't have the specific instruction still received a flogging because he committed deeds worthy of a flogging. But the lashes he receives are but few compared with the slave who had received that specific instruction. The second slave who didn't have the information committed a sin. The first one committed a transgression. Now, Paul already established that all men sin in chapter 1, and that even those who do not have the law know that their sin is worthy of God's wrath, indeed worthy of death. Chapter 1, verse 32, chapter 2, verse 2, and then in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. But the Jews who have detailed, who have the detailed knowledge of the law of God, yet who transgress the boundaries of that which God has clearly forbidden or clearly allowed, are worthy of greater judgment than those who do not have that knowledge. So what is all, why is this all important? It's important because the possession of the law did not improve Israel's position before God. It made it worse. It ensured the wrath of God against their sin all the more. In verse 16, Paul explains why it's so critical that justification comes by faith rather than by law-keeping. He says, for this reason, it is by faith, in order that it might be in accordance with grace. Now, the clear implication is that if justification came to us through the keeping of the law of Moses, then it would not be in accordance with grace. Grace is, by definition, unmerited, right? And as Paul has already made clear, justification cannot be both an undeserved gift and at the same time something that we have earned. It must be one or the other. And it is not earned. Paul continues this very important purpose statement in verse 16, saying, In order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Justification must be by grace through faith and not of the law in order to apply to all who are of the faith of Abraham. This is the second of three times that Paul uses this not only but also formulation in this chapter. And in each occurrence, he uses it to make the point that the true descendants of Abraham are those who share the faith of Abraham. The fundamental question in verses 13 to 16, and really throughout this passage, is who are the real descendants of Abraham? And God's answer to that question given through Paul is foundational to our understanding of his whole plan of redemption. His answer is that the real descendants of Abraham are all those who are of the faith of Abraham. And this is important. Not all Jews 
are true descendants of Abraham. The only Jews who are, are those who follow in the steps of the faith of Abraham. Now that is a very tough statement for some of the Jews who are reading this. My brother Brad Burton has a saying. He says, if your faith isn't the faith of Abraham, get rid of it as fast as you can, as you can because it's the wrong faith. I couldn't agree more. That's what Paul's getting at here. Verses 17 to 22 provide a powerful picture of the nature of genuine faith through the example of Abraham. And there's much here that demands our attention. In verse 17, Paul speaks of the God who is the object of Abraham's faith, calling him the one who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. And then in the next verse, he says, in hope against hope, Abraham believed. Then verse 19, he says, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. The fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham was utterly dependent upon God's power to give life to the dead and to call into being that which did not exist. In order to truly believe God's promise that God would give him innumerable descendants and that the first son in that line of descendants would come through Abraham's own body, and he found it a little later through his wife Sarah, Abraham had to first believe that God had the power to restore his and his wife's ability to conceive a child. Indeed, in order for the child to come through Sarah, Abraham knew that God would have to do an amazing miracle. Because according to Genesis 18.11, Sarah was past the manner of women. That means she was post-menopausal when God promised that he would provide through her the covenant son Isaac. That was in Genesis 17. I find it striking how consistently the nature of Abraham's faith is tied to God's resurrection power. If you look at Hebrews 11, it speaks of the later event in Abraham's life when God commanded him to take his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah and then told him to slay his own son. God, of course, stayed his hand and provided a ram in the thicket to take the place of Isaac. But Hebrews 11 describes Abraham's faith when he raised that knife. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. See, Abraham knew... God had said, the line of choice, the descendants, were going to come through Isaac. And when God commanded him to slay Isaac, Abraham knew God would have to be the one to deal with that. And it says in verse 19, Abraham considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received them back as a tithe. 
So once again, Abraham was believing God to be the giver of resurrection life, to bring into being that which did not exist. In order for God to carry out his promise regarding Abraham's descendants, Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead if Abraham slew Isaac at God's command. Now, I should point out that in Genesis 15:6, when the Bible first records that Abraham believed in the Lord and, and God reckoned it to him as righteousness, God had not yet explicitly revealed to Abraham that the seed would come through his wife Sarah. Although it could certainly be argued that that's what Abraham was intended to understand. But as Paul develops the theme of the nature of Abraham's faith in Romans 4, I believe he's looking at Abraham's trust in God's promise regarding the seed as a whole, as a process. That is, he's looking not just at the beginning of that faith, but at how that faith can uh, grew to include the belief that God would provide the promised seed through Sarah. At each juncture, when God gave and then expanded upon his promise to Abraham, Abraham believed that promise. And I, I believe this understanding is supported by verse 20 of chapter 4. When it says, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Wherever you place the exact timing of God's declaration that Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness, the narrative in Genesis is clear that that declaration happened before Abraham was circumcised. It happened before God commanded Abraham to take his son up the mountain. In Genesis, just as in Romans, God's justification of Abraham was explicitly on the basis of Abraham's faith, not on the basis of Abraham's works. And that last phrase in verse 20, giving glory to God, is important. Early in his indictment of all mankind in chapter 1, verse 21, Paul identified the starting point of man's spiritual demise. He said, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. The word for honor is the Greek word doxazo, from which we get doxology. It means to glorify. The word glory is in chapter 4, verse 20, is the same root word as the word honor in 121. Why is that important? Abraham's response to God's revelation of himself is the exact opposite of the world's response. Abraham believed God's promise, and he gave glory to God. The believer's response to that which God has made known about himself is the absolute opposite of the unbeliever's response. The unbeliever refuses to glorify God in order that he may exalt self. But the believer humbly glorifies God as the all-powerful and gracious one who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Verse 21 gives us a very concise 
description of the nature of real faith. It says, and being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. (laughs) And the very next verse, verse 22, says it was that faith that God reckoned to Abraham, Abraham as righteousness. Genuine biblical faith is the certainty that God is who he says he is and that he is therefore both able and faithful to do that which he says he will do. Genuine faith takes God at his word. That is the faith of Abraham, and it is the only kind of faith that matters. In verses 23 to 25, Paul concludes his argument about how men become justified in the eyes of God, and he does so by moving from Abraham's justification to the justification of everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. He says, now, not for his, that's for Abraham's sake only was it written, that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also. This is the third not only but also clause. To whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. This is where Paul has been going with all that he has said in this great chapter about Abraham. He already said back in verse 1 that Abraham is our forefather according to the flesh. And in verse 16 that Abraham is the father of all who are of the faith of Abraham. Now in these last few verses of chapter 4, he's being crystal clear that we as New Testament saints are justified the same way Abraham was justified. In fact, he says, God had Moses write down the record we have in Genesis of Abraham's justification by faith, not only for Abraham's benefit, but for our benefit. So that we would have no doubt that we, like Abraham, receive the righteousness of God only by faith. And by the way, for us as for Abraham, the faith by which we are justified focuses on the resurrection power of God. Verse 24 says, We as New Testament saints are those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. And in the last verse of this chapter, verse 25, Paul zeroes in on the specific content of the faith of every New Testament believer, saying that this Jesus, whom God raised from the dead, is he who was delivered up because of our transgression and was raised because of our justification. The object of our faith is Jesus, and the content of our faith is all about his atoning death in our place and his glorious resurrection from the dead. That resurrection, by the way, Paul said in chapter 1, verse 4, is proof that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, this marvelous passage tells us what kind of faith we must have in order to stand justified, declared forever righteous in the eyes of God. As I said, the passage is about justification not about sanctification. But in Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7, Paul says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established, how? In faith. 
just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. Faith is always grateful, right? The faith by which we are justified, made righteous in position, is the same faith by which we are sanctified, made righteous in practice. It has the same object, and it has the same content. It is the same kind of faith. So this passage is important to us not only in order that we may be exceedingly clear about the nature of the faith by which we are justified, but in order that we may know how we are to walk and to live as believers in Jesus Christ day by day. There are a couple of things in Paul's description of Abraham's faith in verses 17 to 22 that shook me up some as I studied this week and as I compared my own faith to that described in this passage. First in verse 16, that God is the one who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. If I believe that God could give a son to Abraham when he was a 100 years old and to Sarah when she was 90, if I believe that God could protect the family of Abraham against famine, against war, against nation after nation that wanted to destroy the descendants of Abraham all the way up into into my father's generation and into this generation. If I believe that God could overcome Abraham's own repeated and grievous lapses by which he continued to put the covenant at risk, if I believe that God could make good on his promise to bless all the families of the earth through the descendants of Abraham, particularly through the true seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. If I believe that God could preserve the line of Abraham for 1,500 years to make that happen, if I believe that God was willing and able to overcome the desperate debt of my own sin, to redeem me, to clothe me in the righteousness of his beloved son, to make me stand spotless and blameless in his presence when all I deserve is the fires of hell, then how can I not trust him with the things that concern me this day? How can I not believe when I see my children struggle that his Goodness and faithfulness extends to them and that he is lovingly at work in them both to will and to work for their, for his good pleasure because they're his children. How can I not believe that he is both willing and able to redeem and restore broken lives and brothers and sisters whom I dearly love? How can you who trust in Him who raised Jesus from the dead and saved you from your sins and made you stand righteous in His eyes, not believe that He's able to breathe life into your hurting marriage or to bring good out of the sinful words that you spoke to your wife or husband or your children, maybe even this morning, or to provide for you when your source of income has been lost or your your business isn't going so well, or you're faced with a truckload of unexpected expenses. There are a million ways that faith applies. In verse 18, Paul says of Abraham, in hope against hope, he believed. (laughs) 
in order that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. The faith and hope that Abraham had defies the hope of mankind. And it defied everything that Abraham could detect by his senses and all of the logic of the world. Abraham's faith is the faith to which we are called, to which you are called. To believe God more than you believe your own eyes and your own ears, more than you trust in your own reasoning. To believe God more than you believe what you feel. Not because God hasn't given you sufficient evidence to trust Him. He has. (laughs) But because the one and only thing in your entire realm of experience that's worthy of your trust is God. Your feelings are not trustworthy. That's hard for a lot of us to accept. Until your feelings are submitted to your faith, your faith in God, they're worthless to you. In fact, they're less than worthless. (laughs) They're in opposition to your own well-being because they're in opposition to the glory of God. Your situation is not trustworthy. The object of your faith must never be how well things are going from your perception. The only perception that matters is God's perception. And the only place you're going to find his perception is in his word. Believe who God is and what God says, and you will never be disappointed. Now, some of you will walk away thinking, that I should have talked about how genuine faith produces genuine obedience. There's one and only one reason I'm not going to go there this morning, and it's because Paul doesn't go there in this passage. (laughs) He most certainly will get there shortly. In fact, after just one more chapter. But there's a reason Paul presents his argument as he does and in the order in which he does. I challenge you to read Paul's description of Abraham's faith in verses 17 to 25 the faith by which Abraham was reckoned as righteous by God, and to find anything in those verses that speaks of Abraham's works. You won't because it's not there. Abraham was counted as righteous by God by believing God's promises against all worldly evidence. And that faith was based on nothing other than the incomparable character and faithfulness of God the God who had made himself known to Abraham when Abraham was nothing more than a lost, godless pagan living in Ur of the Chaldeans. Beloved, until we are very clear that this chapter means exactly what it says, that it is not to the one who works, but to the one who believes in him, who justifies the ungodly that God counts faith as righteousness, until we fully buy in to that reality, we will not know the place of works. Make no mistake. God saved us to put us to work for his eternal purposes, not to be useless and self-absorbed. Nobody believes that more firmly than I. But the one who has not entered into God's grace only by faith 
can never enter into his works. Precisely because they're his works, not ours. And the one who has even a glimpse of the magnitude of his grace given to us in Jesus Christ cannot be held back from working for his eternal purposes. You want to be useful to God? Get more familiar with his grace. May God grant to all of us to believe as Abraham did, even in hope against hope, that what God has promised, he is able and faithful to perform. May we believe with all our hearts that every good thing we possess, starting with our righteous standing before our holy God, is entirely and only because of our Savior and Master, Jesus Christ. Father, teach us always to walk by that very faith by which we were made righteous in your eyes, declared righteous. That faith that turns away from self and looks only upon you. Grant to us, Father, the faith of Abraham. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.